0: Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. You know, we're really thankful for many of you who are here actually just joining us for the first time for the Sunday before Christmas. And uh, we're just really thankful that you're able to worship. And we're really praying that uh, not only are we able to celebrate the festivities, and hopefully you're able to get to know some people here in our church. Uh, I really want to encourage some of you who are here just... Come join uh, some of us after lunch. I know you might get into smaller groups, but you know, just get to know a couple different people who maybe you didn't meet before. Because really, Christmas is not just about the festivities, it's not just about baby Jesus, although it is about baby Jesus, um, but it's really about community, it's about family, it's about coming together. And so I want to encourage some of you who, uh, if this is your first time, really get to know some people in our church because we really believe churches, it's not just a building, it's not just a service on Sunday morning. But it's really about the people of God, the the family of God together. And like Annie mentioned, if you want to join, if you're able to join us on Christmas Eve on the 24th, uh, you can join us, and we'll have all the details available on the website. One thing I also wanted to encourage some of us is think about joining uh, the the BRP, the Bible Reading Plan, with us starting in 2020. Who's excited for 2020? Okay, again, oh, okay, a little bit more than Christmas. All right. <laughs> We're going to be starting a brand new Bible reading plan, and as I'm as I'm looking forward to the new year, I know for some of us, you know, it's been tumultuous, it's been hard, it's been a little bit discouraging. We're not where we want to be, but uh, one thing I know for sure is that without God's word, I wouldn't be where I am today. And that's just the Bible reading plan is just one way to help us grow and develop in our relationship with God because it just gives us one chapter, one passage a day for us to read, to dig into God's Word, and to really learn what it is that God is saying to us, to speak to us. So you can follow along, and it'll be, again, on the website. So uh, what, what I want to do is now just have you turn to Matthew 2, uh, verses 13 to 23. And uh, if you have the mobile app, you can, if you don't have it, you can download it uh, online. And we'll actually have the film the notes uh, blank, fill in the blanks. So you can follow along with the sermon. The passage will be there. And, uh, if you don't have a Bible, then just turn to the person next to you and say, Hey, uh, can you share with me? It's Christmas. Okay. Share. Uh, and, and we'll have some uh, good time together. So I, I wanted to start just this, this sermon. This is the last sermon in our series called Greater Hope. And we've been talking about a lot of different emotions and difficulties that God's hope is greater than. And so we started off by talking about how God's hope is greater than fear. Then we talked about how God's hope is greater than doubt, greater than pressure. And today, we're going to be talking about how God's hope is greater than trials. Greater than trials. What a wonderful Christmas message to have. You know, greater than trials. It's going to be a little bit, um, you know, appropriate for when we think about the birth of Jesus. Because there were so many trials That Jesus, even when he was an infant, that he had to go through. And hopefully you you found the passage. And this idea of trials, it's it's an interesting thing because it's nothing, it's it's an idea, it's something that none of us want to go through in our lives. You know, when we think about the word trials, you know, our, our first thing that we think about is usually like hardship, difficulty. If we think about the the word trials, actually it has a meaning of testing, right? If, if some of you are, how many of you are athletes around here? Some of you, okay, not, not many athletes out in the audience. Maybe we're just all still asleep right now. Some of us who are athletes, you go through trials in order to get into a competition, right? Olympics trials, athletes have to pass through the trials before they get to the ultimate competition, and it's because it's some kind of testing that they have to get through, have to qualify in, in order to get to the main competition. But we don't like the trials. We just want to get to the end goal. We just want to arrive at the destination. We want to skip through the trials because they're hard, because it's difficult, because it's frustrating, because it's anxiety-inducing. And that's the thing. The trials, they just come and go in our lives, and we just can't seem to shake it off. And when it comes to our faith, Oftentimes, it's the trials in our lives that make or break sometimes our faith. And trials, how we interpret them, will seem to dictate our faith in many situations. The scary thing is that we could be totally good, faithful, going to church, saying God is good, in one moment. And then the next moment, as soon as a trial happens, then everything could completely change. I know some of us might you know, know exactly what that feels like. You, you're, really, you're, you're doing well with God, and you're saying, I'm, I'm so excited, and I have so much faith, and then boom, something happens. And then all of a sudden, everything seems to change. And you wonder, where is God in that situation? So the question I wanted to start off with this morning is, what's the difference between someone who doesn't give up through a trial... With someone who very quickly abandons the faith or starts to question God, what's the difference? Is it physiological? People who are just stronger, who are more tenacious. Is it environmental? Like how you are raised. Maybe your parents like beat you over the head, like gave you memes, like in the Korean tradition. They like meme, you know, like slap your, your hand, and then because that toughened people up. And so whenever you go through trials, then things are okay. Is it intellectual? Maybe there are some people that are just very strong mentally, that they can rationalize, logically deduce everything and come to the conclusion God is so good. Whatever it is, whatever the world may say, there are a lot of different voices out there that will tell you what it takes to get through trials. And let me tell you, YouTube has a wealth of resources out there for you. right? If you just search on YouTube like, how to overcome trials. You're gonna get like so many different videos. Whether it's like like random like uh, motivational speeches, or you don't know, have like those weird preachers who are like you know give give like these weird graphics. You know it's like the 2000, 2000 Windows XP like graphics, and they'll have like all these verses and things like that. But I wanted to show you. There's a lot of uh, different videos, but I wanted to show you. It's a decent motivational video. But I wanted to show you something that. I would say most people subscribe to in a a very worldly sense of how can you overcome some of the trials, some of the difficulties that we go through. So I want us to watch this together and then watch it. Hopefully, maybe some of us are really inspired. Like, yes, this is it. And then we can close out the sermon and be done. Um, But watch it with a little bit of a critical eye to say, you know what, God? Is this really how we can overcome trials or is this something that's just hearsay? So let's watch this together. How many of us are ready to to get back up, <laughs> to go a little harder, have faith, <coughs> dig deep inside? You know, like those are all the, the, the conclusions of this video. And I think you know, I think in that moment I was watching it at home last night. I was like, oh, well, let me get back up, like get back at the sermon. You know, like I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, as soon as you start to think about that a little bit more, take another minute and just think, oh, what is it? You know, you know that, that video, I I love it when it says, like, dig deep inside. And you're like, what am I digging deep inside for? <laughs> you know, and it doesn't ever tell you. It says, keep going. And you're going to find out right around the corner, like, what corner? You know, <laughs> like, when does it come? And, and when you think about these trials, uh, you wonder what is the actual hope that the video is trying to promote? When your friends say "God y'all you know good luck what are they wishing you good luck from you know what source or hope or power are they pointing you to to help you to overcome that trial and when you really think about it and you dissect it and you deconstruct it you realize it's a bunch of pop psychology that just makes you feel nice in the moment but really doesn't have any substance and for Christians sometimes we we, we use these phrases like oh I'll pray for you oh God is greater than all your trials and struggles, you know, just just trusting God and he'll take care of you, right? And we we take verses out of context and we say, God, for I know the plans that I have for you to to prosper, right? And we say, you're going to prosper. And we're like, well, I don't feel like I'm prospering in this moment. Because the trials, they just feel so real in that moment. And so as we look into this last Christmas passage, this is exactly the, the tension that we have to figure out is what is it about Christ? What is it about this baby Jesus in a manger that the trials that he went through that could actually give us real substantial hope? Where's our foundation? Because unless we find out what this foundation is, then we're going to be left just floundering around in the ocean with nowhere to really latch on to. And very quickly, we're going to find that our faith is going to diminish And so what we're going to do is we're going to look in this passage in Matthew 2. It's the story of Jesus when he was born and how he encountered a lot of trials right after his birth. And we're going to look into, in the first part, we're going to talk about the reasons for trials. Why these trials come up, because as we understand the purpose and we understand the reason, that will help us to deal with them. And then in the second half of the passage, we're going to be talking about what is God's answer to these trials. And so first, let's look into the reason for trials. Let's look into the reason for trials. Hopefully, you've turned to Matthew 2. I want to look at verses 13 uh, to 23. I'm going to first read from verses 13 to 15 together. So hopefully, you've turned to it. Starting in verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, and they is referring to the wise men. Uh, in the Christmas story, we knew that there was uh, a star that led the wise men to Jesus in the, in the manger And then they departed. So when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod, Herod was the king at that time of that region. Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. This is a really tumultuous time in that season for that family, and the introduction to Matthew two is any indication of that. Last week we talked Matthew one. We talked about how Joseph he was betrothed to Mary, and then after he was betrothed to Mary, he found out that Mary was pregnant. Hello, and he's like. What's going on? Who is this baby? Who's, who's the other guy, Mary? And then he went through all the pressure from his family and the different people that were around him. And you would think, you would think that God in his infinite grace would be like, okay, Joseph, you went through a really hard time. Let me give you a break. You would think. But we see in Matthew 2, that's not the case. After Matthew 1, we see in Matthew 2 that the young king, Jesus, he would inevitably have a very bumpy first few of his years of his life filled with trials. And we notice there are three reasons that Jesus experienced trials from birth. The first reason that I want to talk about is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. So when we look at this first section of verses 13 to 15, we can, we can read this section as, oh, like, what's, what's Herod's problem? Like, what does he have going on in his life? He just seems like angry and frustrated, and he's just bent on destruction of this little baby. But we have to look into the deeper reasons. You know, we, we can just come to the conclusion and just say, Harry, why don't you pick on someone your own side? You know, what's, why do you have to pick on a baby, right? It, it's like p- picking on baby Yoda or something like that, right? It's like pick on someone who has got some powers or something, like baby Jesus got nothing, you know? He's just like sitting in a manger and crying. But if we look at the first few verses of Matthew 2, we'll notice something very significant. That's why Herod wanted to pick a fight with Jesus. Matthew 2 verses 1 to 3, let's read the highlighted uh, words together. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We notice there's something about who Herod was and who this baby Jesus would become that was the source of the conflict. Herod was the king of Judea during that time. The Romans were in charge of the whole empire, but for whatever reason Herod was allowed to rule in Judea, in that region, as king. So when he hears that there is this prophecy, the wise men from the east asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What is the first reaction that he probably feels? Well, I am here king of the Jews. I am king of Judea. Who is it that dares put himself as king above I, as King Herod? So right from the beginning, Jesus' destiny and Herod's destiny would clash. Herod saw Jesus as a threat because he was king. And if there's any other king that would come along, that means a threat to his own power. So Herod was a threat to Jesus. Who else was a threat to Jesus? Or who else was opposed to Jesus do we see in the Bible? We see the thief in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's against the good shepherd. We see it in Matthew 4 when Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted for 40 days. Who tempts him? It's Satan, the devil. He's opposed to Jesus. And, it, and at one point, Satan tells Jesus to throw yourself down and the angel will kiss you so you're not dashed upon the rocks. Maybe he was just trying to psych Jesus out to say maybe he could just throw himself down. The Bible never says Satan entered Herod to make him do these things. So we can't conclude that directly. But we know in Scripture that anything that is opposed against Jesus, anything that is against the kingship and the lordship of Jesus is something of Satan, is spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, because you cannot be in the middle. You cannot be neutral. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. When Peter was a disciple, Peter said something very innocently when Jesus said, oh, like, um, Jesus was saying, oh, I'm going to have to die and, and I'm going to die for all of you and you know all the sins are going to be forgiven. Peter says what? He says, no, you'll never die. And then what does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. So anything against Jesus Christ is something of Satan, is something in the spiritual realm. Now, I, I don't like to, personally, I don't like to make this classification. Everything is spiritual. All your trials, everything opposing you and the things that you're trying to do or accomplish for God's kingdom is all of a sudden spiritual battle. Like, you know, I was, I was having stomach problems this past weekend. And, you know, like there's some times where you sit there like, hmm, I'm preaching a sermon this coming Sunday, and I'm having stomach problems on a spiritual battle. <laughs> there's something in there, you know. There's something in the, I made like kimchi uh, fried rice by myself the other day. <laughs> Sent it to my wife, say, hey, I can make food on my own. And right? I was like, oh, but there's something in there because I have stomach problems now. And you know, I can conclude it's a spiritual battle, but really, you know, it's probably just something bad that I didn't make well in, the, in, in my own food. And we could conclude that spiritual warfare, but it's not really like that. Or some of us were like, oh, I'm, I missed my flight, or my boss didn't like my project, and, and I misplaced my data, my laptop got stolen, and oh, that's a spiritual battle. And we could talk about all these different things and just kind of classify it as this like, Hocus Pocus, spiritual battle, and like, oh, yeah. And I don't like making that class okay. I don't like just somehow saying, okay, all these things that don't go my way in my life is spiritual battle. And I don't think we should go to that extreme. But some of us are on the way other extreme where we do not see, we do not realize what's happening in the spiritual realm every single day in our lives. That there's something going on. Difficulties that happen, maybe for no reason, but we have to realize there's something going on. There's some other power that's trying to discourage us, that's trying to tear us down. I think Paul understood this very, very well. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. Again, let's read it together in the highlights. says, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, for though we walk in the flesh as mortal men, We are not carrying on our spiritual warfare according to the flesh and using the weapons of man. The weapons of our warfare are not physical weapons of flesh and blood. Our weapons are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying sophisticated argument and every exalted and proud thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought and purpose captive to the obedience of Christ. Isn't it amazing what Paul says? He, he, he all of a sudden turns something that we see as very worldly to say, you know what? We're not here for fleshly battle. Paul says it in other instances in Ephesians 6. He says, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not just here. We're not just carrying our spiritual warfare according to the flesh. There's a spiritual realm out there. And then he says, we destroy sufficient arguments and. Every exalted and proud thing that sets itself up against the true knowledge of God. Everything that is opposed to God or the knowledge of God or the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God. We oppose. That's our battle. That's the warfare that we engage in because we are sons and daughters of the high king. That whether we like it or not, whether you feel like, oh, I'm in like peacetime right now. No, but there's a battle out there that you're engaged in. And then whether you like it or not, the enemy is attacking you, trying to discourage you, trying to hinder you, trying to do whatever he can in order to get to you to deny God or to question his faithfulness or to question his goodness. I'm wondering if some of the trials that we go through are because of those things, because of the spiritual opposition that we experience. I mean, how many of us, some of us, we got baptized recently in the last couple weeks. And you're, and all of a sudden, like, after these, like, the last two, two and a half, three weeks now it's been, and you're like, man, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And you're, like, so surprised. And you're, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm not surprised at all, okay? I don't know. I, I'm sorry if that's offensive to you, but I'm not surprised. In fact, I went through it. When I got baptized back in 2008, like, the la- next couple weeks were hard. And so many doubts started creeping back in my mind. Like, did I make the right decision? Was this, was this really God? Was it all these other people that were pressuring me to get baptized, and that's why I got baptized? You know, like, all these questions started to come up in my mind. And there's something so true about anytime you take a step toward God, there's always another force that's pushing, trying to get you away from Him. Not just baptism. Some of you might have taken a step to reconcile with someone close to you or a loved one. You're a family member, your spouse, your brother, your sister. And for whatever reason, like, every single time you try to take a step to have that conversation, something, boom, smacks you in the face, and you just, for whatever reason, can't do it in that moment. Something comes up. Some of you are, like, trying to soap every single day. And every time you recommit to it, like, it, it becomes a passage, like, revelation, and then all of this destruction, these bowls of wrath are coming, and you're like, I have no idea what it's saying. And you get discouraged. And you're like, oh, God, I don't, just forget I'm not going to read anymore. Forget the BRP. I don't, you know. There's so many other things. You made a commitment for Missions Month. You committed to applying for missions, and then all of a sudden, oh, my summer plans are gone. I have an internship, and I don't want to do it anymore. You made a decision for God. You're trying to share your faith with a colleague. You're trying to invite that person to the Christmas Eve celebration, but they just left early for lunch and they didn't want to talk to you. I don't don't know what it is, but whatever it is, for some reason, whenever we take a step toward God, we try to do something for God, there always seems to be something opposing us. That's because we cannot be unaware that there is a spiritual battle. There's something going on in the spiritual realm that's causing some of the discouragements. that's causing some of the, the difficulties. I'm not saying we should totally blame and say we can't do anything, but we have to be aware, we have to understand that that's there. Watchman Nee, in his book, "This Virtual Man," he says this, and he puts it really succinctly he says, "To remove warfare from a spiritual life is to render it unspiritual. Life in the spirit is a suffering way, filled with watching and laboring, burdened by weariness and trial punctuated by heartbreak and conflict. It is a life utterly outpoured for the kingdom of God and lived in complete disregard for one's personal happiness. I don't know, that was just a rebuke for, for me when I was thinking, you know what, the Christian life is not designed to be an easy life. I don't know how many of you signed up for Christianity and said, I want to commit to, you know, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. You thought that everything was going to be nice. Oh, Jesus is a lamb, right? Oh, oh he must be so comforting. No. When Jesus adapts us into His family, He signs us up for war at the very same time. And we have to be ready. We have to anticipate. we have to expect that to come. <laughs> so I'm wondering, how about us? How many of us we're going through trials? We're going through difficulties. We're trying to follow God, but we're facing all these setbacks. We're facing all these difficulties. We don't know why. I'm wondering if maybe part of the reason is we're unaware of the spiritual battle that's going around us. The second, the first reason is spiritual warfare. The second reason why we see trials is human sinfulness. Human sinfulness. Let's read and continue on in verses 16 to 18. It says, Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, there's spiritual battle right there, (laughs) became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, And in all that region, who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We now look, and this passage begins to focus on Herod, King Herod, who is furious. He was furious that the wise men tricked him because he met with them wise men earlier. He asked them to go find out where the baby king was and then report back to him. But instead of doing that, they heard from God that Herod was going to kill them. So they left and they ran away from Herod. So Herod is furious. And he says, okay, forget it. Instead of just killing this one baby, I'm just going to kill all of them. And so he orders the killing of all the male children two years and younger. And I just can't imagine the suffering of the children and those families going on during that time. I don't know, there are some families with young parents. I, I just can't imagine what would it be like to have your child just taken away. And so many of us, like we're going through different trials, but this was a trial that was beyond even a comprehension. And sometimes we have to realize that pain and suffering is just caused because there are just some messed up people in the world. And, and I think there's some of us who, you know, we still really question, or, or we, lead, we teeter between really whether we believe everyone is sinful in this world versus there's some good people and there's some not so good people. We feel like, oh, like we sin sometimes versus we're, you know, we're utterly depraved. And I don't know, for me, I just look in the world, you just open the news. I feel like if you just read the news, you will be convinced that man is depraved. I mean yes I understand news has bias and maybe if they did some more reporting on the good nice Samaritan things that people do then you know things would be more balanced but when you when you look at the things that happen with corporations with scandals that happen with with world leaders who do crazy things, I know some of us we are on both sides of the political persuasion in Hong Kong, but when you see some of the things that people do, I, I don't know for, for whatever reason it just just Convicts me over and over again, God, that, man, people are sinful. People are just messed up. And it's not just some people. It's all people. There are just so many things that I'm just like, wow, I never would have believed that people would have done that. Just regular average people in Hong Kong. I never would have believed it. And the Bible predicted this already. Romans three twenty three says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's read it together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I know this is not a reassuring verse. But sometimes this is exactly what we need to remember. This is exactly what we need to know. That all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. That means none of us, we are naturally predisposed to love, compassion, selflessness. And if none of us are naturally predisposed to that, then what does that mean for our world? It means we're going to have problems. It means we're going to have issues. That means people are going to sin against each other, and we're going to go through trials as a result. Galatians 5, 19-21, the New Living Translation, it says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, which most of us do, All of us do, myself included. The results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I've had before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is the sinful nature. And that is by default how we all operate. And if you're still not convinced, I was talking with um, uh, one of the married couples recently, and we were just having, you know, just some catch-up time, and we're just talking about some challenges of married life. And um, now that I'm, you know, before I was married, I was like, oh yeah, just kind of listen to them and pray for them. I'll pray for you, you know, like I just do my best to pray for you. Um, But now that I'm married, I'm like, oh yeah, like I totally understand. And we're just sharing about how, like, there's some different different, just issues and strongholds and sins that we personally go through that just doesn't help in our marriages. And inevitably, we're just sharing about, this is the situation that always happens. It's like, you know, when we're having not a good day, we come home, and and when we come home to our spouse, we just end up saying something that's not really helpful. And then when we say something that's not really helpful, what does our spouse do? They respond, and... Sometimes they respond with love and grace, but other times they don't respond with very much love and grace and they say something back and then what happens when they say something back? I get more irritated and more afraid and it brings out more of the stuff that 's inside of me and it just it's like a it's like a positive reinforcement not positive in the in the good way right, but positive reinforcement in like the Sorry, I was an electrical engineer. So it's positive reinforcement and control systems, right? It's like one thing adds to another and it fuels the other and it just keeps going until it blows up. And you're wondering, like, we here made a commitment till death do us part to love you forever for the rest of my life and here we are yelling and arguing and confronting one another. And you wonder, why would that possibly be? And I realize, wow, it's because when you put two sinners together, that's what's going to happen that we are sinful by nature. And when you put, and you, you have people coming together who are sinful by nature, then of course things are going to come up. And, and don't even talk about, don't talk to me about adding kids in there. You add little sinner children in there. And then, and you guys think it's funny, but wait till you have kids. I'm talking to these married couples and they're like, wow. But it's true, as the older I get, I realize the more and more I'm like my dad. And I realize some of the deeper sins that I go through are are passed down from generations. And I realize a lot of the things that I get into arguments with my spouse about are end up being different hurts and different sins and different issues that I have. That come, and I look and I realize, wow, this is exactly what my dad went through. This is exactly how my dad would respond in that kind of situation. And And, and I think the question for us is when we think about ourselves when we think about our sin how can we not expect trials to come when we realize the sinfulness of humanity both on a on a micro and a macro level on the micro level you might have let's say family problems because you haven't loved selflessly. If, if everyone loves selflessly then you would have no family problems great your grades are bad your sin is your procrastination And probably leads to something deeper, whether it's like perfectionism, whether it's you feel like you're not good enough, or what you're trying to please your parents. You lost your job. Maybe it was improper stewardship. Maybe you didn't work well. Maybe you were lazy at work. Your relationship problems, whatever it is. Or let's say on the macro level, there are bigger things going on. There's injustice, there's racial tensions. There's governing authorities where there's so much injustice going on all throughout the world. There's corruption, there's poverty. And all of these, when you think about it, it's because there's some people in this world, and not just some people, actually most all people who haven't been selfless and it's selfishness that perpetuates the injustices and the problems and trials that we see. And so I'm wondering and I'm challenging us maybe the reason why we're going through this trial is because someone else sinned against us or it's as a result of our, our very own sin. And, and and I know some of us are like, oh man, this trial, God, why? Why am I going through this? And you're, you're constantly crying out and, and you're saying, God, like, just take it away from me and just, God, why is this happening? But I'll tell you what, there's, when you think about the, like, when we think about the extent of the problems in humanity, the extent of sin that's going on in this world. If your hope if your hope, if the only way that you're gonna have and find some peace is if that trial is taken away from you, or that somehow that sin disappears, you're gonna be sadly mistaken. Let's say this one trial disappeared, there's gonna be another, there's gonna be another sinful person, you will meet another sinful, you will meet another sinful person after the Sunday celebration. I kid you not. Just say hi to another person. I'm like, oh, hi, you're a sinner. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to meet. Whoever you meet, unless you're a hermit, you live by yourself, then it's you by yourself, you're a sinner. And you're going to cause yourself problems. But no matter where you go, you're always going to encounter this problem of sin. Until what? Our only hope is what? It's Jesus Christ. It's putting our hope in Jesus Christ in a greater eternity. A time without sin, a time without, without sin, with hope. And it's only because of the cross of Jesus Christ that we have this hope for a place and a time without sin. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57, in the New Living Translation, says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we have. Not a hope right now, because there's always going to be sin during our lifetime. But our hope is in the victory of Jesus Christ that says, for eternity. Now that we have victory over death, that even though we will die in a human way, we're going to all be in the grave, six feet underground. But then when we die, we're going to go to be with Jesus Christ, and there it's going to be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. That's the hope that we have. So, we talked about a couple of different things. Reasons for why trials happen. We talked about spiritual warfare. We talked about human sinfulness. The last one is sanctification. Sanctification. It's for the purposes of sanctifying, for cleansing us, for making us more like Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 19 to 23. It says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise. So after the spiritual, after, you know, Jesus is called king, Herod tries to kill him, and then Herod ends up killing all the other babies. Then finally Herod dies. Maybe it was baby Yoda, maybe it was someone else, right? Herod dies, and then all of a sudden, when Herod dies, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, go! And then in verse 21, it says what? And he rose. And it says that a couple times throughout the passage And and we might conclude, like, oh, wow, Joseph was super obedient. Maybe it was all the trial that he went through with Mary, right, and the baby. Like, okay, well, if God is going to somehow allow pregnancy to work and this baby to come out, then, wow, then I must obey him in everything. But, you know, I just humanly speaking, we really believe in the sinfulness of man. There must have been other things that Joseph was wrestling through during that time. And it doesn't say it in the Bible, but I'm, I'm just wondering... What, are, what else were Joseph's options? If he had moved to Egypt, I'm wondering if he said, you know what, I like life in Egypt. It's nice, it's safe. I don't have to, to, to fear anything anymore. There's, there's a kingdom here, there's provision. Why can't I just settle here? So we realize for Joseph to really listen to the angel, he had to obey, he had to have faith. He had to listen to the Holy Spirit. He had to deal with the fears that he had. And maybe, just maybe, during this season of trial that he went through, it was another trial. To go now, go back to the place where you were persecuted. To go back to the place where people try to kill you, try to kill your son. There must have been something in him that was struggling with this difficulty. Judge, George Mueller uh, it was, it was an amazing um, man who uh, he was German, he ministered in England, and uh, he went through numerous trials, and actually a lot of people who constantly were doubting him, and he says this about trials, he says, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise before patience, to be willing to take them from God's hands as a means trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. What he's just saying here is sometimes trials are just good for you. They're good for you because it's challenging you to trust God more. They're good for you because it's, it's, it's challenging you to become more like Christ, to grow more in patience, to grow more in love. To believe somehow that God is still working in you even though you don't see it at all. I'm wondering if we would see trials as God trying to wake us up. And trying to help you to see, you know what, there's something going on. And some of us, we we just like totally tune God out, right? Like, you know, it's like that that always happens when, when you're like, Sleeping and you have your alarm set and you just snooze the alarm over and over again You're just like god. I don't want to listen to you and it gets doubly worse when you're married, right? You hear an alarm and you're like turn it off. You know, you're telling yourself turn it off And then you realize it's your own alarm <laughs> 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 And you're and the, the, that's how we deal with trials sometimes you sometimes you think that it, it's that other person's problem is that other person's responsibility Like you do, you do something about it. When God is trying to wake you up for a purpose, because he's trying to get your attention, because there's some sin in your life, there's some character issue that you have, that you haven't dealt with yet. Maybe God is using these trials to get our attention. And maybe we just haven't recognized that that's exactly what God is trying to do. And if we saw trials in that way, that maybe that would help us to actually get to that next level of faith that we haven't been getting to for so long. So those are the three things. Spiritual warfare, human sinfulness, sanctification. These are different reasons for why we might experience these trials. So what, God, now now what do we do? What do we do in light of knowing the reason? Just knowing the reason doesn't help the fact that I'm in the trials. So now we turn to the last section where... It's now God's time to answer. It's God's answer to trials. I want to close out with the second and quicker point. God's answer to trials sometimes is the most difficult thing for us to understand. Because when we think about it, we're like, God, what's the point in all of this? The baby in the manger story doesn't really help. What is baby Jesus going to do for me in my suffering, my trial? Because my suffering, my trials are so real. But baby in a manger baby in a manger. I don't know what, what you can really do for me. But it's precisely the arrival of the baby Jesus Christ that we find our hope. I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but if we break down that passage and we see those three different components, we notice that the word fulfill is repeated in all three instances. So the way that structure, when you look at the Bible, you have to know structure. So you realize something happens, and then the author, Matthew, his whole goal of the book of Matthew is to prove that Jesus Christ is the King, coming Messiah. And so he structures this passage to say, something happened, and then this was to fulfill. Something happened, this was to fulfill. It's repeated three times. Let's look at those three instances. Verse 15b. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That was a reference from the prophet Hosea. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 23, And then he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's say it together, that word fulfill. Fulfill. When the Bible repeats something, it's really, really important. When the Bible repeats something, it's really important. And, and just let me make a side comment. Some of us, we just don't know what the Bible says. And for us to somehow, somehow work through the trials and say, God, what are you saying? But for us to not read the Bible, that's hypocrisy. But somehow we go, well, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to teach me? How is this? But, but you never open God's word. That is such hypocrisy. For us to be Christians and to say, God, I believe you as the living God. But I have access to the Word, and I don't ever read it. That is your sinfulness. That is your human responsibility to say, you know what, God? I want to read your Word. And like we mentioned earlier, I want to challenge some of us to really commit to reading God's Word in these next two years As we start the Bible reading. We're going to all start together January 1st. We're going to read through it. And there's nothing magical about reading through it, but as you get to know different passages, you start to—it's really amazing. It's awesome. You, You read a passage, and you're like, wow. I read another passage earlier that connects to it. And then all of a sudden this Bible becomes a whole letter and it becomes this whole message all pointing to one thing, Jesus Christ. And it's amazing. And I really pray that all of us can start to see the Bible that way and really understand the Bible that way. What was I talking about? <laughs> fulfill. Right, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken about. And when we look at this, we realize Matthew was trying to say that everything that had happened, spiritual warfare, human sinfulness, even our sanctification, all of it was to fulfill God's promises. Everything was to fulfill who God was and what he promised, which ultimately points to who? Jesus Christ. In the spiritual warfare sense, in, in, in where he says, out of Egypt I called my son, what was Jesus, what was God trying to fulfill? He was trying to tell even though Herod was trying to destroy Jesus, God brought Jesus to Egypt just so that he could say, out of Egypt, I called my son. Just so he could be faithful to that. Then in verse 17, what was fulfilled by, this, by the prophet Jeremiah, what, what, what good could come out of somehow Herod killing all the children? It was to fulfill a prophecy that Rachel would mourn for her children. Rachel wasn't just this one woman. She was a woman in the Old Testament but it was a representation of all the Israel women who were mourning their children. And you realize, you know what? Yes, Rachel was lamenting the death of her children, but really it's a prophecy to lamenting Jesus Christ, who is the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, who ultimately paid that price. That was what was fulfilled. And in verse 23, it was fulfilled that he would become a Nazarene. And a Nazarene was what? Someone who was a Nazarene was someone who took an oath, right? That was the Nazarite vow from that area. And he just happened to be from the town Nazareth, not because he was born there, but because after he moved back from Egypt, he was warned by the angels not to settle back in Jerusalem or Judea, but to go to Galilee. And so that's why he would be called a Nazarene. Now, no matter what the issue is, no matter whether it's spiritual warfare no matter whether it's human sinfulness, whether it's sanctification, everything points back to whom? Jesus Christ is a fulfillment greater planned and in store. Like, do you believe that somehow all the trials that you're going through is somehow in some way a fulfillment of what God is trying to do in your life? I, I can't tell you what it is. I can't tell you how God is going to fulfill all these things. I can't explain to you uh, this is exactly how it's all going to work out. Your trial is going to work out in this way and later in hindsight you're going to be like, oh wow, that's what it was all for. I can't tell that to you. You have to discover for yourself. You have That's why it's called a step of faith. It's because you cannot see. But it's when we put our hopes and things that yet yeah, we cannot see but we trust and we hope for because Jesus Christ, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then that's what gives us this hope to say, you know what? I'm actually going to believe that Jesus Christ, you're the fulfillment and you're going to somehow make all these trials and everything else make sense one day. And that means we all have a choice. That means we all have a choice to either A, see our trials as meaningless, vindictive. We could see it as like God somehow assaulting us or just randomly causing us pain for no reason. We, We can see him as a sadistic God or we can say, you know what? Maybe everything that I'm going through, it points to the victory that Jesus Christ has over all things. And I remember sitting in the seats that you were sitting in, um, hearing another person preach, and he was talking about hope and faith, and he was saying, you know what the trials that we go through every single day really point to? doesn't point to our life here on this earth. It points to a greater hope that we have in heaven. It creates a longing for us inside, deep down, that we have for heaven to be with Jesus Christ for an eternity. And that's what trials oftentimes does. And it creates this longing because not everything is right in this world. The trials that you go through, a lot of it is because of injustice. There will be injustice in this world, but only will there be real justice and goodness when we go to be with Christ in heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, He says this, Jesus is no draughtsman. Draughtsman means someone who drafts things. I don't know if it's a German thing or not. Jesus is no draughtsman of political blueprints. He is the one who vanquished evil through suffering. It looked as though evil had triumphed on the cross, but the real victory belonged to Jesus. Pretty much he's saying, There might be suffering that we go through. There might be difficult things that we encounter. But it's through Jesus Christ's own suffering, his own trial, his own discouragement that points us to the ultimate victory that we want to see. So when we look back to that motivational video, you don't dig down deep inside. You don't just try to get up again. But what do you go to? You go to Jesus Christ and you say, you know what, Jesus Christ, because you have won the victory then I have that same victorious hope that you have. And it's an eternity that I have that hope. And I, I don't know if some of you are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but uh, I'm actually reading a biography of his right now, an incredible biography. Um, if you ever have some opportunity to read it, I, I would highly recommend you read it. Bonhoeffer was a Christian. He was actually a pastor and theologian during Nazi Germany. During the time when Hitler was rising to power and when all the things of the concentration camps happened, and he was actually imprisoned for his faith and for working against the Nazis because he really believed that everything the Nazis were doing were anti Christian, and he eventually was executed. And if there's anyone who has any right to talk about trials and suffering, it's Bonhoeffer. If there's anyone who is qualified, To talk about the difficulties that someone might experience is this guy. And for him to write what I'm going to share with you the next is, is unbelievable. He says the next thing in his book, the same book. He says, To endure the cross is not a tragedy. It is the suffering which is the fruit of an exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. When it comes, it is not an accident, but a necessity. It is not the sort of suffering which is inseparable from this mortal life, but the suffering which is an essential part of specifically Christian life. It is not suffering per se, but suffering and rejection. Not rejection for any cause or conviction of our own, but rejection for the sake of Christ. It's not suffering. We're never separable from suffering in this world. We're never going to be separate from trials and discouragements and and death, and all these kind of things. Things are going to happen. But the question for us is, do we see this as the very essence of a Christian life? That we will go through suffering? It's because Christ suffered, and we suffer for His sake, and we are able to suffer because we know there's going to be something so much better in the next life. And then my question and challenge is, can you believe that God has some kind of purpose, some kind of fulfillment for the trials and suffering that you're going through today. Not because you're strong, not because you're able, not because you, you intellectually can do jumping jacks over all the things, but because you're his son or your daughter. You're his son, you're his daughter, and it's for the sake of Christ we endure, we go through these suffering and trials because we have a greater hope. And Jesus doesn't expect us to do this just by ourselves, but he lived it out himself. Baby Jesus, who was prophesied to be king, who set himself up against everything in the world, had to endure suffering through the Christmas story when he was a baby. That will prophetically show that he would one day endure his own trial. And literally a trial where the high priests and the Jews of that time would put him on trial, a sham trial, would convict him and that he would go through trials of torture and pain and of ultimately of the cross that's the suffering servant that we look to that ultimately gives us a hope for victory beyond this world Matthew 27 35 to 37 it shows this this paradise this this justif- juxtaposition Verse 35 to 37, let's read it together in the highlight. It says, And when they had crucified Him, they divided His garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over Him there. And over His head they put the charge against Him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Isn't it amazing that God, when Jesus was a baby, He fulfilled all these things? And Jesus as a baby, he had to win through all that suffering in order to fulfill who, what God wanted to do. But not only that, Jesus coming to this place as a king would be fulfilled later on during his crucifixion. And maybe, baby, I don't know, baby Jesus probably, I don't know if babies are conscious that time, or maybe baby Jesus was because he was God at the same time. He could think <laughs> on a higher level, right? But I, I'm pretty sure he wasn't thinking like, wow, I'm going through these things because God is fulfilling the promises, but later on, when he was being crucified, that's what he had to believe. He had to believe all the suffering, all the trials he went through was to fulfill something greater that God was trying to do. And Edmund Clowney he says this, and I just want to finish with this quote. He says, trials should not surprise us or to cause us to doubt God's faithfulness. Rather, we should be actually glad for them. God sends us trials to strengthen our trust in him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence And drive us to our Savior. And I pray that whatever trials that we're going through, regardless, it doesn't matter whether it's spiritual warfare, whether it's human sinfulness, whether it's just sanctification, I pray that whatever trials that we're going through, it would drive us more to our Savior. Jesus Christ on the cross, Jesus Christ in the manger, Jesus Christ who suffered in every way. And He calls us to suffer with Him. Now, that's why the one thing I wanted to give for us this morning is that no matter the trial, our only hope is in Jesus Christ's arrival. No matter what the trial that we go through, our only hope is in Jesus Christ's arrival. I want to give us some next steps for this morning. The first is pinpoint the cause of your trial. Pinpoint, understand where, what is the cause. Having some understanding might help you to realize maybe it is part of God's plan. Maybe there are some things that God is trying to teach me in a deeper way. You need to set some time of reflection. Look at the Christmas story and don't just see it as gifts and holidays and things like that. But maybe there's something deeper that God wants to speak to you about. So you might need to spend some time in reflection and and hopefully we'll have some time during the Christmas Eve celebration to do that. So number two, P, put your hope in Jesus Christ alone. Put your hope in Jesus Christ alone, no matter what trial. And I know that some of us are going through really difficult, really challenging trials, like health issues, death of family members, of loved ones, right? Difficult decisions with our future that's really going to impact people around us. There are so many things that we're going through today. But whatever it is, we need to put our hope in Jesus Christ alone because He is our greater hope. And then lastly, pass on the hope of Christ to someone this Christmas. I want to encourage us. Don't make Christmas just about ourselves. If we have this hope and we go through this trial, we realize, you know what? God does give me this hope. How many more people in this world are going through trials, going through struggles, going through suffering? And I know during the holiday season, everyone puts on a good face and looks like happy. They put on costume. They put on the little like headbands with little bow ties and stuff like that. Like, oh yeah, everything's great, and we're cel- it's a celebratory season. But sometimes the holiday season are the most lonely and difficult seasons that people go through. And it's exactly in these moments that we ought to be the light of Christ to say, you know what? Not that I'm any better, but Jesus Christ has become my hope in my trials. And I want to invite you to discover Christ could be the hope for your trials as well. And so even as we mentioned before, I want to encourage you, just think of two people that you want to pray for, that you want to invite to our Christmas Eve gathering, the night of Christmas. Maybe, who knows, God could really use that as a starting point for them to experience the love of Jesus Christ. Can we stand together as we respond? Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.